I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Internet Marketing. Hello and welcome to the Internet Marketing Podcast brought to you by Cybervisibility. I'm your host, Scott Colnutt, and with me today is Ross Davies, Managing Director of Strafe Creative and author of the book, The Paper Plane Plan. That is a mouthful for me. <laughs> Growth hacking tech. I think, yeah, I think you've done that intentionally just to uh, <laughs> screw up all podcasters in all of their intros. It's something, I, you know, I lost sleep over that last night when I was thinking about this episode. Uh, but yeah, sorry. The book is The Paper Plane Plan. Growth hacking techniques, especially for the B2B service industry. And we'll be referencing that book throughout today's episode, which we'll be discussing what to look for when selecting a design agency. So I was just talking to Ross before we pressed record about the fact that this is a hot topic in our agency, site visibility at the moment. And throughout my marketing career, it's been a topic that comes up over and over again. You know, some marketers come from design backgrounds, some come from development backgrounds, some don't come from design or development backgrounds at all. I've experienced all of that. I've worked closely with designers. I've worked with agencies that have in-house designers. I've worked at agencies that have in-house design development and those that don't. And it's always a really interesting world. And I'm working in a world at the moment at Site Visibility where we don't have in-house designers or developers. Uh, we have a mix of clients that do. And every time that a new website launch comes up or a new design project comes up, there's quite a lot of debate about how to best approach the topic of selecting a design agency, what to look out for, the quality signals, the red flags. And I'm looking forward to covering all of that with Ross today. So Ross, welcome to the episode. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No pressure there. <laughs> well, it's, uh, 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 well, you've written a book basically on the topic of growth hacking techniques in the B2B service industry. So I expect a lot of this to be, and I've seen just from your approach in the book, uh, a culture of experimentation, um, a mentality that's experimentation-based. And mm-hmm. you've documented all of that in your book. And so expect these things that have come up for you. When you try to build an experimentation-based culture, by nature, you have to be pretty observant. And so I imagine a lot of what we discussed today, you've seen and have observed yourself over your career today and are probably still observing these things come up. Uh, and actually, just, yeah. on that, just on that note, if you want to take a moment to introduce yourself and just explain to people what you do on a day-to-day basis at Strafe Creative. 
Yeah, of course. So um, I guess first one is just kind of who who Strafe are. So Strafe Creative, I guess we consider ourselves what is a conversion-led design agency, um, which basically means, obviously, yes, we want something to look aesthetically beautiful. But for us, one of the main things is increasing the overall conversions. And obviously, that might be you know, SaaS purchases. It might be that we want people to fill in a form, or it might be a more traditional thing like an e-commerce purchasing, that that's what we want to aim to do. So we kind of have this ethos all around what we kind of call client success through great design. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what leads us kind of down the path that we take. And from a point of view of, I guess, who I am, uh, I'm just the the co-owner. My business partner is called Patrick. Um, I guess my actual role is more of the MD. So I'm liaising with lots of different teams um, throughout the day just to kind of make sure everything's going on. Whether that's, uh, I guess, speaking with the sales team or checking it with designers or the developers or any of the project managers. Obviously, sometimes, depending on the scale of the project, that a, um, a client might be admin that they won't be heavily involved in the project, and I can be. And then, obviously, I'm, I'm looking at if we can be creating partnerships or you know, overseeing the overall kind of planning of what's happening in the marketing. Um, if I do get involved in the projects, which I still really like to do, the bit that I really like to get involved in is the nitty gritty bit right at the start where we're doing like all of the research and we're looking into the personas and we're planning out the user flows. And I still quite like that. bit. That's my that's my favorite bit. So that's a, a quick summary, I guess, of, of who Strayfar and a little bit about myself and what my day to day normally looks like. And that's a really good point to pick up from is I'm interested to know why. Why are you interested in that user journey part? I guess that early briefing stage, what is it from your earlier career that you've taken into that aspect of your role at Strafe? Yeah, so I guess um, yeah, from this kind of point of view is you know, there's, there's, there's a couple of things if I just look back on this. So when we first started out, you know, we, we were a very different agency, right? We were still learning. Uh, we both had a little bit of experience, but we started this relatively fresh and we're, what, 11 years in now? So we've, we've learned a lot over the time. I think, as you've mentioned kind of at the beginning, that there's a lot of experimental things that we did and tried. And actually, one of the things that came from, um, from years and years ago, back before Crow was like a terminology, and obviously that's conversion rate optimization, we started to look at ways that we could try improve our designs to, I guess, manipulate the user to buy more. It was just so long ago that we it just didn't have a term. It wasn't necessarily known as Crow. It was was just trying to figure out how that we could make really successful websites and, and do that. And that's kind of where we went from. From a point of view of, I guess, my kind of influences, my, my actual dad's uh, an industrial designer. So I got quite heavily, and it was kind of like car parts, so like locks on windows or different bits and pieces that would go inside the car. And he, I guess, had me involved, I guess, not even really realizing it, but, you know, he'd always be talking to me about, the importance of ergonomics and designing for the end user. And I guess that naturally started to come out in how we tried to differentiate ourselves, that it's not just about something that's good looking and aesthetically beautiful. It needs to function well. It needs to convince the user um, to not only buy, but potentially answer any of their objections. And that, that becomes a really, really key part to us. And that's something that's interesting to me, the engineering background, because when you come from a more practical background, and I'm looking at this through my lens in marketing, I consider myself a hands-on practical marketer. But at the same time, I'm in podcasting, I am the managing director at Site Visibility. And I imagine that some of your experiences have maybe mirrored mine or we've mirrored each other in that 
you go from this really hands-on practical role. And as you develop your career and going to a more management orientated role, sometimes you can miss getting, you, you actually mentioned at the beginning there, getting your hands dirty and yeah, yeah. maybe getting involved in the day-to-day of design and development and actually building things yourself. Is that something that you've experienced and how do you satisfy that aspect of your curiosity when you have that kind of background? Yeah, I guess, uh, so another thing I, I, I guess I didn't mention is uh, I actually went to university and I did science-based design and engineering. Mm. So my plan had been to kind of become like a mini, a mini one of my dad, really. <laughs> but I guess just because of the, I guess the digital area that, uh, or area that I live in, that's kind of how I ended up in there. So from a point of view of, yeah, kind of satisfying that itch, I still like getting involved in the projects. And I guess I get the benefit of picking and choosing the ones I, I get involved with. And probably sometimes get in the way of the other guys kind of trying to do their bit uh, and run them. Like, let's be honest with that. But, um, but yeah, I think that's a big part of it, right? Like, you should still enjoy working every single day. And if I can find ways of doing that, that yes, you know, I do enjoy the the big planning and all these other bits and liaising with lots of people. But sometimes it's just really, really nice to just turn off Slack, turn off my phone, focus on kind of figuring out some user flows and how they're going to work together. And um, that, that's definitely a bit that I really enjoy. And I think that ties in with, I guess, the education I got when I was younger. Mm. And before we go into some of the details about that stage that you're talking about and just the briefing stage and the process behind the scenes at Strafe, there are a couple of other points from both your book and your intro there that I want to touch on. So the first is just experimentation in general and uh, again, you've created a book around this topic and uh, and documenting your experiments. I'm interested to know any lessons from you in building a culture of experimentation. So are there any examples that you can point to that have really helped Strafe create a culture of experimentation? You talked about 11, 11 years in, it's not easy for a company that's been in operation for such a long time to retain that same level of enthusiasm and culture of experimentation from the start a decade or, or more on. What do you mm-hmm. do? How do you do that? So uh, we ran or we run something called uh, Kaizen, which yep. is basically the, the term for kind of like continuous improvement. So we try and have that, I guess, at the forefront of, of what we're doing. The other part of what we do is we don't ever, if something goes wrong, we don't kind of ever blow up at it there and then. There's no point. There's no point mm-hmm. having a go at someone about what's happened. So what generally just happens is we we have something called a snag list. So whatever goes wrong in the business or we have an idea which we don't know how to solve, we have this snag list. And then every Monday, the team sit down and we review the snag list slash ideas list. Um, and we discuss as a team how those things could potentially be brought in. Like, what can we do? How can we get those in? Here's an idea how those can work about. And I think it's the combination of because if something goes wrong, we don't have a go at them. So there's not really that concern of failure. Um, we're not going to have like, you know, people aren't worried to throw ideas out there and try them. So I think because me and Patrick are quite open to these ideas, quite happy to throw some money or some time at something to see if it works. And, you know, I guess from a management point of view, that's hopefully eked out through everyone is something can go wrong, but we can take a lesson from it. So it's not a case of, oh, we've just spent all that money. I'm actually furious at you. It's like, okay, well, what have we learned from that? What can we do to progress? What can we do to make sure that never happens again? Um, and that's why that snag list is really useful because rather than, you know, it, it takes a little bit of getting used to because all of a sudden you've done something wrong and it has to be aired with the entire team. 
But the whole point and the way we try to kind of position that is this thing happened. How do we think we could never like stop this from happening again? And I think that naturally just breeds um, like improvements. Hmm. And the aspect of CRO is the next thing, which also ties in with that. Uh, you, you refer to it as Crow. I've never really got comfortable with calling it Crow. I always refer to it as CRO. So, uh, you know, it's just a, a preference, I guess. But, um, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, that's really interesting to me as well, because that seems to be very intentional that Crow is a service offering. Uh, that ties in with your design and development side of your business. Not every design or development agency offers CRO as a service. And, I mean, this really leads quite naturally onto what to look out for when finding an agency and going through that briefing process with an agency. So maybe just as a starting point here, this might seem like a really a trivial question for you, but I know because I've seen it myself, both from clients but also from marketers, that not everyone knows the difference between what a design agency does and what a development agency does and their respective responsibilities and also the similarities. So from your perspective, can you describe to me the difference between a design agency, a development agency, and for anyone that's listening, what they should be looking, really, when should they be looking for one, the other, or both? Yeah, of course. Um, so I guess the, the first thing I'll just caveat this with is, I do think there's something to consider here with just the overall scale of the project. So mm-hmm. if we start with a design agency, you know, as the name would suggest that they're going to be far more design forward. Um, if we take Strafe as, a, as, a, as an agency, we are a design agency. We are very focused from a design aspect and we take all these things that we want it to be, you know, client success through great design. And we're going to spend a lot of time on that. Um, we obviously cut our teeth on things like complex user experience projects. It might be very conversion-led e-commerce, or it might be you know, design of interfaces for games, for example. But as part of that, we're still expected to build a lot of those things. Mm. So we do have like really good developer experience. But I guess what I would say from that kind of point of view is, and that's why scale is really important, that if it's like an e-commerce one or something slightly more traditional, that's probably where you'll have a design agency that can also build it. Mm-hmm. If it's probably a far more complex user UX project with like a big interface for something that's being built out, that's probably where you have the two separate companies. So you have the design agency that very much focuses on the design, and that's where you bring in a dev, a dev agency or a dev house, whatever you want to call them, and they'll focus on that sort of element. Same thing with if you go to a dev house, that they probably have some basic kind of design knowledge, and they'll be able to do some of those bits. But they'll get, you know, where they're going to be making their money and where they're going to be like cutting their teeth is on those more complex build, which a design agency probably doesn't have uh, the capabilities of doing. So, you know, if you're only spending, a, you know, if it's a more traditional project, you can probably get away with one or the other. But it's when you start to build up those bigger, more complex projects, you're just naturally going to find that agencies will, I guess, focus on their expertise and, and not necessarily kind of touch into those sort of, some of those other areas that could be there. I do think that's a really important bit. You know, for another one that you might have someone like a a SaaS company that's obviously going through some funding and they're likely to kind of hire a design agency to just focus on the design element. And then they'll probably hire a separate dedicated dev agency to focus on the complex dashboard that they've then created. And then the two of them get to work together. So um, I do think scale of project is really, really important to to kind of consider as well. Interesting. So, the advice to the listeners, it sounds like here is don't always expect 
a design agency to be the agency that's actually going to build the thing that they design. And I guess on the flip side of that, don't go to a development agency and expect lots of designs of support either. And uh, the additional thing there is that you will find some agencies that do both. So you will find some agencies that do the design and then can pass it over to build and work on the whole thing, but don't necessarily expect one to do the other. You better be careful what you're looking out for. Is that fair? Yeah, I think the main thing is just just asking the question, right? So, mm. like, we might get asked to uh, quote on designing and building something, mm-hmm. and we'll say we'll look at it and we'll, we'll get the developers to look at it. And if we think it's outside of us our, our, our skill set from a development point of view, then we'll just tell them like there's there's, there's no point trying to like fluff our way through that and try and win the whole thing when we don't think we can. So we'd rather focus on the elements that we can do. Mm-hmm. And vice versa, obviously, you know, what's beneficial from that is we we might have a couple of dev houses that we already have that we know we work really, really well with, but obviously I can just loop them into uh, and explain. And from my point of view, the way we always talk about it is we're really good at our one thing, like our thing, and then they're really good at theirs, and then we work really, really well together. So for me, I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing. But as you've touched on, you know, you might have a very, very large agency that can do both and do everything really well. Um, and I think the main thing is just asking them that question. And the easiest way of getting around that is, you know, asking for, I guess, projects that they've done that are similar. So, so for example, if you came to us and expect us to design and build it, but we've only got experience of designing projects of that size, then we'll just, we we're able to, to kind of show those and explain them. Hmm. Well, this is nice because it leads into what I wanted to talk about next, which is, really going into that process of them finding an agency. And so for our listeners or for marketers out there that have a client that are looking for a design agency, for business owners that may be looking for a design agency, where would you recommend people start? So that's not necessarily how people come to strafe. I'm just interested from your perspective. uh, You know, where, where do you recommend people start? Are there any particularly useful aggregator sites or how, how do you recommend going about that process of finding someone for the first time? Yeah, I was going to say, this is where I go like, oh, you go to Google and you type in Strafe Creative and then you click on that one. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, so the number one site I would personally say, which has a really good caliber of client is the drum and they have the drum recommends. And that is an area where you can literally type in this type of service they're after. If you're after a particularly localized service, then you can type in location. Probably that's probably a whole topic that we can chat about separately. Yeah, yeah. But um, but yeah, you can go on there. You could type in, you know, I'm looking for a web agency, and then they'll have them on there. And the huge benefit of something like the Drum is, um, I guess, how they get the reviews off people. There's a fairly substantial cost to join the drum. Mm. Um, and almost that is quite useful because it weans out the smaller, um, I guess, less established companies. So you know probably the size of the company that's going to be on there is fairly good. Um, but then the caliber, like how it sets you up and how you have to invest the time and get reviews is a little bit more complicated than most of the review companies that you could work with. So it generally means you get a really good overview of of the company when you look at that. And actually, like one of our big goals is to be a top 10 kind of drum recognized agency. They do a big list of 100 every year and our, our eventual plan or, or aim is to be a top 10 one. Um, the other thing is to do is just look at what, you know, what is good design, right? So let's start looking at some design award sites. So there's awards with three W's in for obviously represent the, the World Wide Web. 
and that's normally quite a good one as well. And there's websites like Site Inspire. Um, there's there's places such as Dribble where you can go, which is like almost like a social media portfolio site for designers, um, and they'll put their work on there. And the other one that actually does work really well is you know, if you come across a site that you really like the look of, scroll down to the footer, and depending on the size of the business that, you, that it was with, most of the time there's probably a built by x company link so for example we we pretty much always have like a bill or designed by strafe link on on something that we've done and that brings in loads of work for us because people have already seen this type of work that we've done or they've seen it for a competitor or something and then they can get in touch with us in that way so drums definitely a really really good one um obviously looking at kind of design award sites and trying to find what where they've been obviously looking around for those awards that you uh, looking around for like sites that you really like to look up and just getting in touch with them is is normally a pretty substantial way of kind of working through and finding someone of use to you and yeah uh, you said it's a big topic and it's one that i'm really interested in is location so mm. does location matter when selecting a design agency from your perspective um, I mean, to be honest, even pre-COVID, I've never viewed it as a problem. We, you know, we've got American clients, we've got clients all over the place, and as long as there's a crossover of time where we're both available to talk um, and share stuff, that I don't really see a problem with it. And even then, we've got some ones where we, you know, like New Zealand, where we we have literally no crossover and we still can work with them. They just know that when we're when they're asleep, we're working, and vice yeah. versa. I do think COVID's made a big difference. For example, we had clients in London who would always insist in, in seeing us mm. and having all of those face-to-face and coming to them and always having to pitch everything in person every time. Whereas now, like, you know, they're more than comfortable with just like, hey, like, this is the new life, right? Like, let's just do everything digitally and save everyone a lot of time and money. So, yeah, for me, I don't necessarily see it as a problem. But that also, I completely understand, can come down to, like, what the project is. Mm. So, for example, you know, we are the persona of who you're after is someone very localized to a certain area then it kind of makes sense that you pick an agency in that area because they'll probably have a good understanding of the type of people that you're trying to attract like there's definitely something that 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 might tie in with that um and the other i guess part that you do have to consider is that design does differ from country to country so something that we might consider that looks great in england to Italians that might not look so good um, and vice versa something that looks really good in, in France might not be something that we think kind of works particularly well over here in the mm-hmm. UK so there is a little bit of that but I think some of that comes down to the project itself the persona of who um, the project is aimed at as well. Mm, that's really interesting to me and um, I don't want to go off too much on a tangent it's very easy to do this when talking about the pandemic and when talking about experimentation but I'm really interested to know a little bit more about strafe and how you operate uh, now so we're t- we're in september 2021 uh, we're still in a pandemic uh, yet some people are going back to the office at this stage how are you operating mm-hmm. at the moment so uh, did you have remote working in place prior to the pandemic where are you at now and just as someone that's interested in experimentation is there anything that you've learned over this last 18 months when it comes to remote working in a design agency um, that you can yeah. share with us on the podcast that's been particularly interesting to you? Yeah, the first one I'll probably share with you is, um, so you can have a laugh at my expense, is we cleverly signed a 10-year lease on a new office last oh, January. Yeah, <laughs> that's... Uh, uh, <laughs> so that was, 
That's not good. That was good. <laughs> um, but we already had, I know, ridiculous. Right? Um, we we already did have just a, we had like two people who were already remote. Right. So nothing major compared to the size of the team. Um, but that did mean that we could transition to remote working a lot easier. Yeah. Now, from our point of view, that we've made a decision start this year, something like that, that when COVID was over, or even now anyway, is we've moved to a completely flexible system. So you can come into the office if you want, or you can just work from home if you want. Um, it doesn't make any real difference to us now. We've, we trust the guys. We know that they're working. Um, we have flexi time anyway, so you can start and end between certain times. So it just gives huge flexibility to the guys to, you know, allow them to work around their lives a little bit more. So, for example, you know, my wife works Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, but she works like 12-hour shifts. Mm -hmm. So what's really nice is I work from home on those days so I can be around for my daughter and get her from nursery at a decent time. Whereas Thursday, Friday, I generally go into the office and I get to have a little bit of kind of social time by seeing everyone and being out and about. And um, that's kind of how I work it. Some people come in occasionally. Some people come in all the time. Some people just work from home. For me, I, I just want to, you know, we're very lucky. And obviously I have to say this in a way that like some people have to work from a set place, right? Like mm. manufacturing or something. But for us, we can kind of do everything that we need to do remotely. And it does mean that we are slightly more invested in kind of software to allow us to introduce some of those things. Like one of them, which is, which is really good that we've used is because um, we use Slack for all our communication. Yeah. Um, and there's a little piece of, I guess, kit that you can use, which is called Hallway. And what Hallway does is it, um, it the idea is it tries to introduce the, you know, walking down the hallway and bumping into someone having a chat. Right, right. So two, three times a day, it just randomly starts to chat with everyone <laughs> um, and it randomly picks people uh, and you can have it to set to everyone or small amounts. And if people want to say that they're not available that day because they're working on something, they can. And they're just like 10, 15 minutes at a time. Mm. And it's just a nice way because otherwise you could just not talk to anyone all day. Mm. Um, so it's little things like that that we just try to introduce to make it a bit of a, a nicer working environment. That's interesting. Uh, that's uh, Thanks for sharing that. That's I'm really interested in how people are adapting at the moment. And as you said, for the for the tools and the techniques that people are implementing to help, you know, once you have a culture and it's an office-based culture, how then you retain those cultural elements, the positive elements of your culture when you're, go when you're moving remote. I really like the idea of hallway. I've seen actually, um, I'm in some other Slack channels and I've, I've seen something very similar called coffee chats where uh, you kind of hook yourself up uh, randomly with someone in the, in the same group once a week, once a fortnight, once a month to have these more ad hoc conversations, to have these more informal conversations with people. Um, so I really like that idea too. Bring it back to the topic of looking for a design agency. Um, you were talking there a moment ago about maybe looking at the drum, dribble, some other platforms. So let's just say, for example, that I'm a listener, I'm a business owner, I'm a marketer. I've gone through that process. I've started to build out kind of my hit list of design agencies from the drum, from dribble, and I'm going through those websites, those design agency websites for the first time. What are the quality signals that I should look out for on those websites once I've been through that process? So uh, I imagine that you look at loads of websites what the, what, yeah. as, uh, on a daily basis. Uh, for the trained eye uh, and even for the untrained eye, what are the things that we should look out for that are positive signals of a, 
a, a reputable design agency or a quality design agency? Yeah, so th- this is actually like, I guess, perfectly ties into one of our big major things that we try and do here at Strafe. So when we start a new project and we're trying to figure everything out, we start with something called objection hunting. Mm-hmm. And objection hunting is where we're trying to figure out all the potential reasons that someone might not buy from like that client. Yeah. So a lot of companies will just focus on standard credibility builders. So they'll focus on just the awards or just the reviews. Whereas actually we want to get a really good understanding of why someone might not want to work with another, like this particular company or buy from this company or buy this type of product. And then we want to look at ways that we can visually answer those objections. Mm-hmm. So, so it kind of ties in quite nicely with that. So, you know, kind of touching on what I've just said is the, the traditional things. So obviously, yes, the awards are going to be super useful. Like if they've got some awards on there, they've got some proof of expertise, that's going to be really good. Reviews are obviously a really good one. I would always say that when I see reviews, I want them to have come from like a third-party software like Trustpilot or Reviews.io because they're a lot harder to fake than just you typing it out mm. and being like, hey, this is what I, this is why you know, my mum thinks we're great. <laughs> um the other one is obviously just the quality of the work. Like for me as a design, you know, going to a design agency, you want to be able to click on that design agency, look at their portfolio in detail. For me, it worries me if like they don't really show any of the artwork off. Like mm. for example, if they just have a logo of the company that they've worked with and then no real reference to what they've done for them. Like for me, there's two uh, parts to that. First off, you want to see the quality of the work, right? You want to make sure that everything they've done makes sense. But the other big part is there's designing and then there's designing for a purpose and designing to make sure it, it does something. So I want to read the case studies. I want to make sure they almost explain why they designed something the way that they did. Like for us, we kind of have this rule in, in Strafe that if it's just designed to look cool, it's not really a good enough reason. It needs to have a purpose. It needs to have a genuine reason why it needs to be designed in that way. So those are the soft things. And then going back to what I talk about with like objections is, um, I guess there's a there's a slight guess, the thought process of um, that creative people aren't necessarily the most organized people. Right. So making sure that the agency that you're going to work with is process driven, making sure that you're going to get a Gantt chart from them, making sure you're going to get an understanding of when the project's going to start and when it's going to end. You know, having an understanding of how that's going to work, I think is really, really key. And, and that's normally because they'll have been burned in the past, right? You know, they'll have mm. hired a design agency, design, you know, the project ran five months over. So next time they're like, okay, well, we need to make sure that that doesn't happen. We need to make sure that we're getting that sort of information up front. Having a proper breakdown of the process of, that you're going to be taken through, I think is really key. And it's that idea of that you're not just selling the hole at the end, you're selling the drill, you're showing the whole thing of how it comes together. So rather than just saying like, hey, we've designed this cool website, it's like, hey, we're going to take you through all these 10 steps. These are the 10 steps of how we're going to take you through them. And then this is, how, you know, here's an example of our end product. So for me, it's kind of starting to take things through on these, on all of these bits. But that kind of objection hunting is a, is a really, really key one that needs to be identified in someone's business for us to then design around that. Mm. And I do think an easy one that's normally overlooked from design agencies, we're so focused on showing off our shiny beautiful work that we don't necessarily think of some of those other things Mm. and what do you think of the the role in video in that and um i say that knowing that i don't know the software that you use but knowing you a little bit yeah i've seen you produce several videos uh working with us at stop visibility as a partner and 
I'm a big fan of a, a Chrome extension called Story Express. I know Loom is really popular. But yeah, I'm interested. Video seems to play a big role in this this transparency factor, really showing what's happening behind the scenes. And it uh, allows room for a little bit more authenticity and openness. Is that how you see it? Yeah, for me, I think um, I do think it's a really, really key part of what we're doing. And obviously, it does slightly depend on the project that you're doing and obviously what you're selling and potentially the budgets that you've got to work with. But video is a, is a really easy visual way to get something across in a very small amount of time. So you could get something across in a 10-second video that would might take paragraphs of content to get across. So that's why it's so useful. And it's not to say that copywriting isn't useful because copy definitely needs to be there and that really needs to be thought through, especially with like tone of voice. Mm-hmm. But video can definitely tie in and that can range hugely, right? So video can be a two, three-second snippet of just something to add some visual interest or maybe to get a small story across. It might be a talking head video where you're trying to get across a bit more staff personality. It might be an explainer video because they're going to be, especially for a SaaS company, an explainer video is by far the easiest and most visual way to get something across. And we like to use things as pieces of software like Wistia. And what's really good about those is they give you the stats and you can pull the API information into your like Google Analytics um, and you can pull it into other KPI software. So, for example, we can prove that someone who watches the video is far more likely to buy and how much of that video they watch. And we can also see from those sort of stats that, okay, they're only watching half the video and we seem to be losing everyone at X point. Like, why is that? Mm. So video for me is definitely a really key one. And you can use it in a few different ways. Like I know you mentioned Loom. So we use Loom quite heavily, even just part of our kind of project management. So for example, if a client gets in touch to say, they really like that they've had this idea or they're not sure how we could potentially implement that in rather than me spending like an hour trying to write this perfect email with screen with like screenshots of everything. Mm. I'll just load up what they've, I'll load up the side that they've mentioned. I'll just record my thoughts over it and I can just send it straight back. It's just a really, really nice, easy way to, I guess, speed up what we're doing, but generally makes the digestion of content a lot easier. So, you know, for you to get something across to a client that they might not be understanding or you want to get across why you design something the way that you have, video is really, really useful. So, yeah, video on-site and video just as part of our, I guess, on a day-to-day basis for us is completely crucial. And I'd love to start breaking that down a little bit more as well. So you just mentioned there that uh, you just mentioned, you know, once someone's made contact with you, and that's where I want to pick up the conversation. So I want to look at things through the design agency lens a little bit more here. When you receive that inquiry for the first time, what do you look for that helps you deliver a fast and accurate quote and just to go through that process? So what are the positive indicators for you that you look out for where you think, actually, yeah, this this is right up our street. We know exactly what we need to do and this is the process that we follow. And on the flip side, what are the worst case scenarios where you look at it and think oh, flags. yeah where you look at it and you think <laughs> oh no this is going to be a really terrible one to try and work with yeah if you could maybe talk, um, you, talk me through that from your your perspective yeah so we got a new one in there that i, I think you know we it varies hugely so we have a project planner on our website so the big purpose of our site is to get people to fill in this project planner yeah and that's because they have to fill in certain things so they have to fill in the type of project it might be it gives them the option to upload a brief there's an area where they can write a little bit of information and we also ask for a budget um for, for us i think just general openness is really really key 
So like people being open to like explaining their project with us and even just giving us the time of day, it's surprising. And this is a bit of a red flag that the number of people who might just send you something through and be like, I just need a cost on that. Mm. And it's like, there's just physically not enough. You might think there's enough information here, but there's, there's physically not enough information for me here to quote on. Yeah. So like, I need to, I need to like pick your brains or understand a little bit more about the project. So that general openness to be like ready to jump on a call with us. And I think that is a concern. You know, people don't want to get on a call and just be sold to. Like they don't want to be like, oh, just like funneling this thing down them. From our point of view, how we try to do it is we're just going to try and learn as much about your business as possible up front and what you're trying to do so that we can go away and then come up with the ideas for you. So I don't necessarily want you to tell me absolutely everything. And actually, sometimes a really detailed brief isn't necessarily what we want. That's not a bad thing. It means that they've put the time in and they clearly see um, the importance in the project if they've gone to this. But sometimes a brief can be so restrictive and we don't think it's best for them that we then have to go back in to be like, we want to do it this way. And that does sometimes work really, really well because they're like, oh, no one else has bothered to put that amount of thought into it. But sometimes they're like, no, 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 this is what everyone else is going on. We just want you to do it in this way. And that makes it then harder to be like, well, we don't think that's the best way to get the most out of the project. Um, so there's always that little bit that you have to think about. Um, other ones that are obviously like really great is, you know, if we can get them on that initial call is then just being realistic and really open with us. So, you know, discussing budgets, discussing timeframes, discussing softwares, giving us access to the analytics, for example, is a really key one that we normally want, you know, as we're quoting on it. Because we want to have a look at how successful the site is. We want to have some understandings of how well the site is performing. And if we can't get that, it makes it harder for us to figure out how we can improve it. So general openness is really, really key. And sometimes people are just like, no, we don't want to give you access to that. No, we can't give you that information. And then when we just say, oh, could you give us the stats on it then? They're like, oh, no, we don't really feel comfortable sharing mm-hmm. that. It's like, well, it, it makes it hard for us to understand the project in more detail if we, if we can't do that initial research. Um, so that's a really, really key one for us. Other ones are when people on the phone refer to it as, oh, it's just a, you know, it's just an easy, simple thing, or it won't take up too much of your time, or they need it instantly. You know, we've got this massive UX project, and you've got two weeks to deliver it. It's like, <laughs> I, I could start it instantly now, we wouldn't have it done. <laughs> Never mind, you know, needing to go through the sales process to get this booked in and, and everything else that we need to go into it. So timescales are sometimes a little bit unrealistic and that that also uh, depends on size of the company and industry that they're in but we'll always be really open with that so like if if someone's desperate to have it we'll just tell them our timescales there's no point winning work to then say oh actually we can't start it for x number of weeks and it's going to take us x number of weeks to do so if they're absolutely adamant you know in that initial meeting that has to be done by set time we'll, we'll like i will always or whoever's doing it will always walk into that meeting knowing what our next start date is mm. on a project. I'm, I'm really glad as you were talking, you mentioned budget. I'm mm-hmm. really interested to know, do you take on projects if people don't share their budget? Or is that a non-negotiable thing that people have to share their budget with you for you to actually take on a project? So yeah, I mean, I guess to t- take on a project, obviously we're never going to start a project until a budget is fully agreed. Yeah. But we will still obviously quote on a project. Right. Um, and the general rule of thumb that we would do is if someone doesn't want to share as absolutely admin, they don't want to tell us a budget, I'll just explain some of our minimum costs. So like we, we know, you know, even without fully understanding a project, we know how much an e-commerce project is going to be as a minimum. Mm-hmm. We know how much, uh, you know, a, 
15 page, 20 page interface is going to be as a minimum. Um, so then we're able to kind of just say, okay, well, just so that you're aware, this is our starting costs. And we just want to explain that just from openness. Obviously, it can go massively north of this, depending on how much we deal into this and what you guys want to do. But um, I completely understand that budgets are really hard. Where right? Like, I'll do the same thing. Like, if I get someone to quote on something for my house, I'm always a bit like, will you tell me <laughs> how much that's going to be? <laughs> um, it's like, I completely get that. But the way we try and just do it is like, just because you've told me the budget is X doesn't mean I'm going to charge you that amount. Yeah. Like we just work out in the same way that we'd work anything else out. So the reason budget is really useful to us is we can see how far we can push the project Yeah. and see what we can do with it. Um, if people don't want to reveal the budget, we'll always share that. And even then, if they're just a bit like, yeah, that's fine. We normally will always give a few options anyway. So we'll, we might give you a, hey, this is what we think we could do. This is this is like the perfect one, and like this is us going all singing or dancing. If you had the budget to do it, this is what we do, and we always try to give a few options anyway. Um, so yeah, for that, but budgets are really really tough one. Yeah, and there are lots of parallels, by the way, as you're talking between what I've experienced in a, a marketing agency environment, as you might suspect, with a design agency, particularly when it comes to the openness and willing to share information. That's really important to us in marketing. Definitely when it comes to the w- the willingness to have a conversation around a brief, definitely when it comes to the point about deadlines and urgency, those are all parallels with what I um, experience in marketing. And this next point that I want to discuss around quoting and when to charge is something that I imagine is a parallel between marketing and design agencies too. So you go through that process. Let's say, for example, you've got, all of those positive indicators that, yeah, this project is for you. And then in the design agency, what happens then behind the scenes? Because we always have this kind of debate in our uh, in our marketing agency, and I've seen it over the years. You want to get paid for your expertise, and sometimes you have sometimes that expertise is required to really shape a brief. Sometimes it's required strategically. And in a design agency, I suspect that there must be a trade-off between how much time do you spend on bringing a quote to life through mock-ups or wireframes versus when don't you do that and when is that chargeable work? Can you maybe speak through that process for me and maybe describe how that works at Strafe? Yeah, sure. So we, I guess we break this down into two different camps. So we will have one where... And I guess it slightly comes down to budget and scale of the project again. Mm-hmm. But um, for a project where we think we understand what they need and we think that we can definitely explain all the reasons for it and there's definitely agreement between us and the client on the direction and what we're going to do, um, I guess we're just backing ourselves on that. So we'll just put mm-hmm. that time in and we'll just make it work as best we can. And you know, you'll get a feel in that sales process of how well this is going and if they seem keen on working with us. So we'll just take that on the chin sometimes. And if we don't win it, we don't win it. And we just try to find out why we didn't win it. Um, and actually, a lot of that will just come down to, you know, we don't mind doing that if we have an understanding of the scale of the project and the timescales and the budgets and who's going to be involved. And one that I forgot to mention is, um, you know, what their, what's their expected outcome? Mm-hmm. I forgot to mention it in my previous answer. Like, you know, you want to go into a project with a realistic thing. So, you know, for example, if someone came to the site visibility, and they were like, hey, we want you to double our traffic through SEO within a month. You'd just be like, 
well, that doesn't matter how much money we charge you, that's probably not going to happen. I would cry. Yeah. So, 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 yeah, and I'm sure you've had that. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's there's definitely that that needs to be taken into a, needs to be taken into account. And sometimes we'll you know we'll just invest in that, and I can talk you through that process if you want me to. And the second part is, you know, a much bigger project where they've got some decent budgets, but they're not necessarily sure how to do it, and they want to run through it. What we'll do is we'll do like a mini, basically like almost like audit and briefing project, and we might charge them for a week's worth of time for us to essentially go away, but put, you know, almost like a, a brief and proposal together on like steroids. So we'll do all the initial research. Essentially, we're just doing the start of a project, but just that on its own. Mm-hmm. So we'll go away and do all the objection uh, handling research. We'll do all of the persona planning. We'll look into what the plans for the pages should be in the user flows. We might do some basic wireframing. We'll put together what is called a data architecture. So how, you know, because normally these sort of projects are only when it's really complicated. So planning out how all that data will come together. They might have lots of individual integrations that we might need to go away and spend some time demoing and figuring out and looking at their API systems. Um, But then we can come back from that and basically present that and be like, Here's your exact cost. Here's all the work that we've done. And we've already done, you know, quite a lot of the work towards starting it. Yeah. Um, and that's how we end up splitting it. So we either take it on and we're just going to work through it. And I, again, if you want me to explain that kind of process, I can. Or we, we just basically explain to say, we don't think we're in a position to fully quote on this and really understand the project until we do X, Y, and Z. Mm. And X, Y, and Z costs this amount of money. And actually that, generally works really well because people go, oh, all the other companies have just given me this this cookie cutter Mm. and they just said they've understood it from the same information. Whereas actually, if you think you can do this and it's this small amount of money and if we like it, we can crack on, they almost view that as like a, it's a nice way of just testing us out. Yeah, so uh, what I'm hearing there is that there's no hard and fast rule and it really, it's dependent on the potential scale of the project. You're not opposed to charging when necessary for, that early scoping or briefing process if you feel the project requires it. But if it doesn't yeah. require it, you won't charge, essentially. Yeah, yeah, that's a really nice one. It's a far more elegant way <laughs> of putting it than what I just said. Uh, no, no, uh, but yeah, that's definitely the, definitely the best kind of course for us. Interesting. And um, just on the pricing point, so any advice that you can give to our listeners on what they should look out for with respect to pricing? So let's say, for example, um, yeah, maybe you've been through that process that we've been discussing today. You get the pricing information back. Uh, what should feature alongside the pricing information? What are the red flags that maybe people should look out for? What do people need to consider? Um, yeah, so this is a really tough one, right, for pricing because it's a bit like how long is a piece of string because, mm. you know, and I'm sure you've had this that you might, you know, one company might charge 10K, another company charges 30K, and another company charges 100K. Mm. And I think the mistake that people make is they just show the price and they don't explain what they're going to get for that. Mm-hmm. So having a little bit of breakdown, I think, is really, really key to explain how some of those stages are going to be spent. For me, we always like to include who the team is and what their experience is and, and what they bring to the table. And some people... So prime example is so Patrick, my business partner, is the creative director, and he's obviously very, very good at what he does. He's fairly well known, so people will come to us, but be adamant that he has to be on the project. So he naturally has to have he has a higher day rate than everyone else. So we'll always explain that in our quotes to kind of break down who it is. So we might be like, 
you know, we're using X amount of time of this person, we're going to use a senior for these sort of pages, but we're going to then use a junior on X and Y, and then that, that's the breakdown of where our pricing has come from. We explain a general idea of the money that's going to the design and that's going to go into the, into the build and try and split that out and explain that as best we can. But the, the easiest one that I would normally recommend from a pricing perspective is always get multiple quotes. And the reason for that is that just so you've got comparison, not necessarily just so that you can go, well, let's just go with the cheapest. Mm. But it's more like looking at it and going, okay, are they the cheapest because their day rate is so low? Or are they the cheapest because they've not understood the brief? Have they missed stuff out of it? You know, we've won projects being the most expensive because they felt, well, yes, you are the most expensive, but you've thought of this and this and this. No one's even said that. No one's even done these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's always interesting because a bit like me saying, we've won stuff when we've been the most expensive. We've also won stuff when we're the cheapest. So it just, it depends when you go like client, right? Like we don't realize we're going in as the cheapest. Obviously our prices are our prices, but sometimes we're the most expensive. Sometimes we're the cheapest, depending on, I guess, the scale of the company has come to us. We try and base everything on a bit of a pricing matrix that's just been developed over the years of you know, experience of how long we know things take. And it's just a combination of all of those things that start to come together that allow us to really break that down. But it's not just a, you know, it's not a spreadsheet where you just fill it in and you're done. Each one's really fairly bespoke. You've got to really think and put some time into it. And I think the red flag for me is just the, Almost like someone can, you know, if someone can turn a quote around the same day, they probably not, they probably not put the time and effort into it. Now, obviously, you should be waiting weeks for a quote, but you know, giving someone some time to really think about your project, speak with the team, you know, something that's complex. I'm always going to pull in a designer and a developer for us to discuss the project and, and potential pinch points and what they think could happen and what could go wrong or what they think we could do to to add to it. Mm-hmm. That that needs time for us to be able to do that. So. So yeah, that, they're definitely some things to consider. Mm. And that definitely mirrors my experience in a, a marketing environment as well. It's I was smiling as you as you were talking that through because it's definitely not the most enjoyable part for me as a marketer to go through the the process of kind of itemized pricing. It's just a little bit of a painful process sometimes. You mm. you get excited about the the work um, and you actually that's the part that for me is the most satisfying. So it can feel a little bit tedious, but absolutely necessary. And the other thing that strikes me uh, is that uh, we also just in our company go through an exercise in, you know, price is uh, debated, discussed um, as a conversation between the team about pricing. And that can take a little bit of time. And so in our experience, sometimes there are clients or prospects that, you know, they might be coming from the angle of thinking, well, surely you do this stuff every day. You know, why can't you get a price to me quickly? And actually, I mean, I just encourage, I just think it's useful to have these conversations. I'd encourage anyone that's looking for a design agency or marketing to think about, you know, maybe if a company's spending quite a lot of time on the pricing, it's probably a, quite a positive indicator because they're probably debating it a lot behind the scenes to get you the best price possible and actually to break down the pricing in a way that's more digestible for you. So that's that, that resonates with me quite a lot. Um, no, Definitely. So just one question to close out the episode here. Aside from pricing, uh, let's say the pricing is good. Uh, a prospect or a client is in receipt of that information. They think, great, we're good to go. Before they sign the dotted line on a contract with a design agency, what else should they look for maybe in a contract? Um, what would you look out for if you were hiring a design agency 
as part of that design contract? Uh, first and foremost is the IP, who owns the IP. So um, we hand over, as soon as that final invoice is paid, we hand over full IP rights for all of our design. So you can have all the design files, you can have all the code files. It's yours to do what you want on the basis of if we've done a good job, you want to stay around and work with us anyway. Um, but it's pretty common that you, you'll just get a license. So what that basically means is, yeah, you can use it on your website, but you can't have the design files from us because right. they're ours. So overall IP is really, really key. Uh, Timescales, I think, you know, you would hope, you would hope, but it doesn't always happen. You would hope that an agency would tell you when they're going to start it and when it's going to be finished, yep. even if it's ballpark. Um, I always want to know who's on the team. I think that's really key. Um, another one is whether it's fixed fee or an estimate. So some agencies, so again, like us, nine times out of 10, we'll quote what is called like a project cost. So as long as the brief doesn't like hugely change, the fee's the fee. Whereas you will get with some agencies, what they might do is they might go, yeah, it's 10,000 pounds, but you only get three sets of revisions. Anything more than that. So if we've missed the mark, <laughs> I was found a bit strange, like if we've missed the mark and we haven't done it right and you want to keep making changes, we're going to charge you more money. Yeah. So like number of revisions and that sort of stuff would be in there. Uh, communication how that's going to happen i think is really key and that needs to be something that is agreed upon before project starts so we have some obviously covid slightly different now but we had some clients who are adamant you know they, they basically said at sales stage and this is something that we try and find out is they were very adamant that all of the meetings when they were you know when we were pitching our designs always had to be in person so that's key because we need to know that at the start when i'm quoting so i can take that time into account um, we have some people that only ever speak to us via Slack, so they'll join our Slack and they can just go back and forth with us and that obviously speeds everything up. We have some clients that only ever speak to us via WhatsApp <laughs> and we like email everything through and they go back and forth over WhatsApp with us. So I think doing an agreement, you know, there would normally be what's called an SLA, so a service level agreement that's put in place to be like how we're being communicated to what's going to happen. Um, I think costs moving forward are going to be key as well. So like what are the hosting costs? Mm. What are the maintenance fees? And, and actually, what is included for that? So, you know, you can go get maintenance fees for like hardly anything. So, like, why would I not just use them? Could I use someone else for these sort of things? Um, how training is delivered, I think, is a really key one that we've learned over the years. So, what we used to do with our, you know, we'd finish a lovely site. We'd What we used to do is we'd give them, like, you know, an hour or so's training to how to do it. And then we'd leave them to it. But the problem with that that we found was, you know, they have a new team, uh, new team members, or that person leaves, and then who has that? And then we have to re-educate them all. So what we do now is we put like a little website university together, and it's a page just dedicated to them with lots of individual videos about how to use their individual site. So rather than just videos of a generic one, we do them of their site. So it just means, yes, it's time-consuming at the start for us to do, but it means moving forward that any you know as the team grows their side they can just keep watching those videos over and over and over it just makes life so much easier so having an understanding of that is something that you don't necessarily think about until the end um so how is that training going to be delivered what's going to happen with that you know what happens if there's a problem with the website so site's been live for two weeks and there's a bug do you have to pay the agency more money or are they just going to fix that mm. You know, compared to, 
if the project goes, um, you know, if it's been live for a year and then there's a bug and you're not paying the maintenance fee, what happens then? So it's just little things like that that I would say need to be sorted out that need to just be agreed and then normally put into a, an SLA for you to make some decisions on. Mm. It's funny because you say little things. I think it's just because it's so natural and habitual for you to discuss. But these are big things. These are these are important things to. And I've seen. It yeah, yeah. I guess like yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. These no, are no. big things. No, yeah. I've <laughs> seen I've seen that happen in marketing, and I've seen that happen with design agencies where these things have been missed, and and actually the pain and the cost that that can cause you as a as a client or as a marketer, a business owner. You know if if you haven't considered those things, it can be really stressful and quite frustrating. And actually sometimes, and I've seen this in marketing is that some sometimes the, if you don't question these things, now typically a good marketing or a good design agency will talk you through this process and actually highlight to you all of these things that we've just discussed by default. They'll do that. Uh, they'll take a position that, that perhaps you don't understand this and they'll leave no stone unturned. But sometimes things do get missed and it is on you, you know, if you're signing any contract with any service company to review what you're getting. And, um, yeah, I've seen misplaced frustration sometimes when there have been additional costs later in a project. And all of that can be avoided if you have a really good conversation before you even sign on the deadline, which actually kind of nicely ties back into something you were discussing earlier is that you've got to allow plenty of room for conversation for the agency that you're selecting to just talk through all of this stuff with you. And if you allow for that time, you can avoid a lot of that difficulty later on in the process. Yeah, there's, there's probably one more area that I haven't touched on, which if it's okay, if I'll just Go mention for it. Yeah, now, absolutely. Another really key one is just the tying in with like a third-party agency. So, for example, uh, if Strafe is working with site visibility, how's that relationship going to work? Mm-hmm. So, like... I want I want that to be referenced in the proposal. I want that to be known up front. I want that to be a selling point of why Strafe is the right agency to use because we've already spoken to you. We've already had an understanding of what you're wanting to do with the site. Obviously, the, the client will have aims, but you as an agency, as a search agency, are going to have your own aims as well and plans for what you're wanting to do. So I think that needs to be considered. And that needs to be considered not only on what your aims are, but also your potential timescales, how that affects our timescales. Um, and then also just, you know, like just a migration of one site to another. Mm. <laughs> it's obviously could be, you know, if, if for example, the current, the current URL structure is a mess, then actually we need to consider that. So how is that going to affect it and who's going to do that work? You know, you're, you know, someone like site visibility is going to lead on that. So we need to make sure that those are all thought about and they're explained as well. So they're not necessarily tying into an overall price. But what you don't want to do is not tell or the agency not ask or not tell the agency that this other third party company exists. You get cracking on the project and it's only once you're in build that you go, oh, the SEO company's now looked at the designs and they need like double the amount of content and they want to change the URL structure. It's just too late. So for us, we want to have them involved straight from the start to make sure the project works really, really well together. Perfect. Uh, Ross, I know we're coming towards the end here. So I just, uh, I really want to say thank you for your time. This has been a really interesting episode for me to look at things through a design lens. I, I mentioned before we started recording, but we, this is a conversation that I've been wanting to have for quite a while on the podcast and has been a hot topic internally at Site Visibility recently. So I'm really glad I got to have the, the conversation with you. Uh, thank you for being so open with the information that you've shared. 
And um, you just touched on it at the end there. We also have this resource if we're working together, flexibility and strafe. Uh, we have this resource to share with potential prospects to say, hey, here's how the process yes. works. Um, you know, there's, uh, I really like it when a plan comes together like that and you have that additional resource. So um, that's been excellent too. But before I let you go, I've mentioned that the, so the company is Strafe Creative. The book is the paper plane plan. Um, do you want to let listeners know the best way in which they can contact you and Strafe Creative? Yeah, so uh, probably just to explain, Strafe is spelled Sierra Tango Romeo Alpha Foxtrot Echo, just on the off chance because we do get some unusual spellings of that sometimes. Right. Uh, main web address is strafecreative.co.uk. Uh, I'm most active on Twitter and LinkedIn. So my Twitter is just forward slash Ross underscore Davis. And Davis is D-A-V-I-E-S. And then on LinkedIn, um, it's linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash Ross Davis, all one word. Um, and they're probably the best kind of places to get hold. Uh, books on Amazon, uh, just type in Paper Plane Plan or my name and uh, it will come up and you can get it there. You can get it on Kindle. Uh, I think it's going to be on Audible next month. Go check out the book. Uh, go check out Strafe Creative. Uh, if you want to know more about the topic, again, you can message us at Site Visibility on all social platforms. Email us at marketing at sitevisibility.com. But for now, Ross, I'll say, uh, well, thanks for your time this morning. And this has been the Internet Marketing Podcast. Take care. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.